So what we discovered was take that pain point out, that ease of fulfillment. The quickest decision is the best decision. So speed is the most important attribute. I believe that's still the case today. And our system allowed us to do that to work when the people we were supporting as partners in this home buying journey were working. And so that's been very successful. And because they were remote, they worked from home, they were able to make their own hours they could align themselves to the hours of those brokers and the brokers could do the same thing with the realtors. And that's not to say that deals always come in on the weekend or something, but when they do, you need to know if you need it, it gets done. And that's where the value proposition is. The most inspiring stories from today's most successful mortgage brokers. Join your host, Scott Peckford, on I Love Mortgage Brokering. Hey, Broker Nation, Scott Peckford here. In the show, I have John Webster. He's a president and CEO of Scotia Mortgages. And, you know, Scotia is the largest bank lender in the mortgage broker channel. John had originally started a company called Maple Trust, which I worked with years ago. That was bought out by Scotia. And then John ended up heading up all of the mortgages for Scotia. So everything that Scotia touches in terms of mortgages, very smart guy. And obviously has to keep his finger on the pulse of everything that's going on. And so I love these conversations because we go pretty deep. It's a little longer than my typical episode, but I think it's absolutely worth the conversation. So first things, we just talk about sort of how he got there. So how did he end up as the top at Scotia? There's a lot of lessons along the way on that path. And then we dive into some questions about interest rates. You know, a guy like John, when you have that many mortgages and you've got to hedge funds, any little movements in the market can make a big difference in your profitability. And so I asked him, I'm like, hey, what do you watch? Like, What are the things that you look for when it comes to you know mortgages and keeping an eye on rates? I go into the same question. I talk about the housing market. So I'm like, hey, tell me about the housing market. And what are you looking at? What do you kind of think? He's got to obviously pay attention to this. There's a lot of smart people around him. And then the last question I asked him, which was kind of fun, I said, on your personal mortgage, John, what would you do? Would you go fixed or variable? I had a ton of fun having this conversation. I took a lot of notes and it really got me thinking just about how I think about real estate and mortgages. And I think you guys are going to find a ton of value in it. A couple of shout outs. First, our title sponsor for our podcast that we do is Finmo. So if you guys are listening to this, go check them out. Tell them that I sent you. I love those guys over there. They got a fantastic platform. It's a mortgage application, document collection, submission platform that we use at our brokerage. The agents love it. Very easy, user-friendly, and they got lots of cool features they built in, but they haven't overdone it. It's not like one of these, you know, you see these remotes for these old TVs that have a bajillion buttons on it and you can't operate them. They've really done a great job of figuring out what is useful and what you need, and I think you can tell in the design. Also, at the end of this episode, I talked to Reuven from Dita.ca, so they're a virtual law firm that I absolutely love as well. And so if you haven't checked them out, you gotta check these guys out, like honestly, if you're having trouble with closing on time, like go check out dita.ca slash ILMB. Ruben and I talk about NFTs. He's obviously from the law background and real estate. And so it's a really interesting conversation that we have. So check that one out as well. I check out Dita, check out Finmo. And thanks again, John. I really appreciate this. I'm going to definitely take you up on having you back again at some point and check in because I love these kinds of good discussions. Hey, John, welcome to the show. Pleasure to be here. So we can uh, have an interesting chat about mortgages and housing because that's not very topical. Yeah, it's very topical right now. And thanks again for taking the time to chat with us. But so before we get into the questions I have for you, can you tell me a little bit about like how you got into your role as president, CEO of Scotia Mortgage Corp? Sure. About 15 years ago, just a little bit longer, I sold my company, Maple Trust, to the bank. And Scotia had been in the broker space with a business line called Scotia Express that they actually inherited when they had purchased Montreal Trust. 
And they had not had the kind of success that they'd hoped for in that space. And they were my bank and they were very much involved in our capital market strategy as the CMB evolved and with us finding liquidity among the various providers at the bank. And so I had started Maple Trust back in 1999 as a broker only origination business, but it was fully regulated by OSFI and had a deposit base. And essentially, though, it was created just to originate mortgages from brokers and mostly securitize those. So we looked at a very distinct model, which was different from what the dominant folks were providing at that time, which was First Line, First Net, and MCAP and launched that and that business was quite successful and the bank decided to pursue it and purchase it. Prior to Maple, I had vended another trust company, an Ontario-based charter trust company called London Trust into Maple. So I've been working with mortgage brokers for more than 30 years in the space. So it's something that I've not only had a great degree of experience about, something I feel quite passionate about in terms of the success of that broker space and its contribution to the mortgage market and housing in Canada. Right. I remember Maple Trust, actually. I used them way back in the day. I forgot that they got purchased. So for somebody who's listening to this who doesn't know, what was unique about Maple Trust that made it such an effective business model and made Scotia want to buy it? That's a really good question. And what we did, which was different, We looked at the ingestion and the underwriting program. Obviously, now everything has become automated. At that time, that was just in its infancy. So we looked at writing our own program so we could automate that underwriting experience. But we also did a number of focus groups with existing brokers we had at London and looked at all the pain points. And basically, we went to our bigger broker customers and said, let's take a whiteboard and give us the top 10 things you'd like to see from a lender. Eight out of 10, quite frankly, would have bankrupted any lender, but we did find a couple. (laughs) You found found ones that could work. Well, we found a couple of nuggets. And what we came up with, which was different, was dedicated underwriters that were variably comp and dedicated funders who were dedicated to the underwriters and to those brokers And the variable base was so that there was economic alignment between the broker and the underwriters. So often in the industry, as you know, that was not the case. And so they weren't completely aligned. The broker was concerned that if we turn down the deal, you know, they only get to eat what they kill. And so we wanted underwriters focused on the same basis. But there's checks and balances to that. So then you don't want the underwriter in a variable comp situation to be too vested and want to approve deals that otherwise weren't credit worthy. So you need some checks and balances. But why we really did it was for efficiency. And I think that's been the success of the model. The BRMs today that are at Scotia Mortgage Authority are the most efficient underwriters, not just in Canada. I think that in any mortgage market that I've seen in terms of the volumes that they produce per person. And as a result, that model is high service. And the other thing that we did, we didn't want to service all comers at Maple Trust. We wanted you to demonstrate you gave us a minimum volume commitment in order for us to stand up that dedicated model. And so literally the 80-20 rule applies. And by that, I mean 20% of our brokers would provide 80% of that volume. And so were we able to deal with a much smaller group of high-performing 
broker customers through the years than our competitors. And that led to greater efficiencies and greater turnaround time and greater success. So I think it was that we got the right value proposition with respect to service. And today there are almost 150 BRMs across the country. When I started Maple Trust and rolled it out, we had six with two coming on. And so you can see how that model has evolved and been stress tested through many different markets. And we still have a dominant market share. It makes Stephen Smith cringe and others to <laughs> see those results come out every quarter. It's not a model that fits all circumstances. If you're a broker owner or you're in a shop, you know they want desperately to have as many agents have access to our folks and our product, but that doesn't work with that dedicated underwriter. You really need to have somebody who is going to submit to you a material and significant volume in order to make the efficiencies work on both sides. So I think that's a big part of it. And that was a big part of Maple Trust that kind of changed the industry a bit. And then, you know, all the other lenders have come up with automated systems and probably surpassed us, but we're still working on our broker website today, trying to make sure that you can get information that you as a broker need in real time to see the status of your deal and how much you've been paid and what's happening next. So other lenders offer that as well, but I don't think other lenders have been as successful as ourselves in terms of building those key relationships between the underwriter, the management of that underwriting group under Mike Biar and Gary Morrison. They have very few folks that manage a group of people, you know, that did phenomenal volumes throughout this pandemic. Numbers that in the old days when First Line was the king of the space, you know, this year we would have more than doubled or tripled first line in its very best year. Mm -hmm. That's crazy. And so you said something of their variable and calm, or what was that you said? Calm, variable compensation. Oh, calm. Okay, so, right, that yeah, makes sense, so right? Yeah, so that, that economic alignment, paid, all right. Yeah. yeah, they get paid basis points just like, well, I guess you're not doing it anymore. You're, are you still brokering? No, so I, have, no I have a training company, we train, and we have a brokerage right. for training people, but no, I'm not actively doing mortgages at this time, so... But yes, I think my underwriter, my original BRM was a Maple Trust BRM and she trained me. I didn't know how to do mortgages. I literally, she's just like, Scott, smarten up. If you don't smarten up, I'm going to fire you. I'm like, okay, okay. And so like, she was great. She really got me dialed in. Her name is Lauren O'Meara. I don't know if you know her. Well, yeah, but of course, she's still there. And she, the reality she was awesome. is that the good thing about the model that speaks for itself is that we've never had to go out and advertise or try to attract people to that position. It's a destination job. And it typically attracts people who are very experienced in mortgage underwriting, but want to do mortgages for the rest of their life. So, you know, maybe they were in a bank setting and they don't want to do other products. So they come to the mortgage business and say, that's what I really like helping people get housed. You know, it's the biggest financial decision most people make in their lifetime. And so, there is a certain amount of pleasure that people take and be able to assist. And so we've been able, because of that position has had so much success, people don't leave it. They leave typically if there's a life event, but more people want to join it than we ever have spots for right across the country, which is, a you know, today, particularly coming out of the pandemic and the reopening, you see with the supply chain disruptions, you see people really struggling to be able to find employees, right? Mm -hmm. and, oh, yeah, it's uh, crazy right now. 
And we've been very fortunate. We continue to be able to hire in those positions and continue to attract new talent, younger talent, and people that are very ambitious about their prospects. So one of the things you had said there was that they did this focus group and you know they said, here's our top 10 things. And eight of them, you said, would bankrupt the company. But what were the two things that you were like, okay, this is can be a differentiating factor? What were they? Was it the variable comp and the alignment of... That was kind of an offshoot of it, but the reality is, and this would be no surprise to anyone in the industry, back at that time, what people really didn't understand was that most people, for example, in the resale market, you and I, when we go out to look at a house in the evening or on the weekend, and so if we're in a circumstance where we find a house that we like, and it's a very emotional decision, usually with our partner, you're looking at a circumstance where you need a decision in real time. So you want that decision on the evening or in the weekends. And if you're in a situation where you've got to visit a branch and branch hours during office hours or deal with an underwriter during office hours, that was a huge pain point because a lot of the volume was done in evenings on the weekends and you're competing. You're a real estate agent. You're competing on this house. The potential purchasers competing on the purchase and they want that financing. So what we discovered was take that pain point out, that ease of fulfillment. The quickest decision is the best decision. So speed is the most important attribute. I believe that's still the case today. And our system allowed us to do that, to work when the people we were supporting as partners in this home buying journey were working. And so that's been very successful. And because they were remote, they worked from home, they were able to make their own hours. They could align themselves to the hours of those brokers and the brokers could do the same thing with the realtors. And that's not to say that deals always come in on the weekend or something, but when they do, you need to know if you need it, it gets done. And that's where the value proposition is. And that was, I think, not a learning, but it was making that happen. And to do that, you need a platform that allows you to ingest that. And then it gets more complex as you, you know, go further along in an industry that's still, you know, very dependent on paper. But I think that brokers wanted that. They wanted a compensation program that made sense to them, that rewarded the producers. And I think that was an insight in terms of, what was volume bonus all about? The one departure that we had from the rest of the industry, we weren't really interested in just having people aggregate to get to a higher level of volume bonus. We wanted to reward the people that actually produced for us. So our volume bonus was really formed on the basis of individual production. Right, right. It makes sense. I know Jim Chalukas is one of the coaches that works with us in our academy and he loves Scotia. I'm sure you know who he is. Uh, I do. He does a lot of volume with you guys and he does speed, man. He's always like, it's quick. It's like bang, bang. Like he's so quick at getting responses back that it becomes a competitive advantage, you know, for him as a mortgage broker. So it was really Maple Trust's model that Scotia, when they purchased you and Maple Trust, that's when they adopted that. Because prior to that, correct me if I'm wrong, but SMA didn't run that way, right? It was more of like a traditional... It was very, very traditional and had the worst aspects of all of those traditions from separation of duties, segregation from people that took the app to the people that checked the documents as they came in to satisfy conditions. It had underwriting centers that were set up on branch hours and they were located in central Canada 
and didn't realize that there were still people in your province that needed to do deals after 2 p.m. in the afternoon. It was, from my perspective, probably the worst of all of those worlds. So we had to change that model. First, we had to integrate. In the beginning, when we joined Scotia, we had to run for a couple of years more than that, where Scotia Express says we're able to offer Scotia products and Maple because of technology and integration continue to offer Maple products, even though it was owned by Scotia. And in addition to that, I then had the sales force that was competing. So I had three competing brands under my own roof, right. uh, which makes you learn a lot about channel conflict in a hurry. The industry over time has evolved more towards this sort of dedicated underwriting model. But I'm still surprised by how many people organize themselves around models where there are too many touch points and too much back and forth and aren't efficient. And, you know, it gives us a competitive advantage, but it's really old school thinking that hasn't evolved in my view. Right. You know, I got to tell you a quick story about Lauren Amara, my PRM. So when I first started working with her and because I was a new more broker, I'd send her one document, another document, and she put me in my place, man. She's like, look, Scott, have you heard the red dot? I'm like, what do you mean? Every time you pick up a file, you put a red dot on it and it tells you how efficient you are. Your files are covered in red dots because you send me everything. <laughs> you don't send me anything. You don't put it all together to send it at once. She goes, if you don't smarten up, I'm going to get rid of you. I'm like, okay, okay, sorry. I'll smarten up, Loren. And so she definitely, yeah, she tuned me in there. But that's about the efficiency thing, right? So you you have a high producing broker like a Jim Chalukas. He's not going to waste his underwriter's time. That's important. But you raise a really good point, which isn't that obvious, which is a lot of new brokers you know, we appeal to people that have big books and have been around for a while and very successful, but we also want to develop new brokers. And it's interesting as new brokers come on and they work with a BRM, they go through a very similar experience to what you're describing. And if they can work through that relationship and get past sort of some of the friction points about, you know, not saying I want all my docs up front or I'm not going to put you to the bottom of my callback list because you're so inefficient. If they can learn to work together, most brokers, as they build up their book, will say, you know, that BRM taught me a lot, not just about credit, but about how to be more efficient. And then that relationship is really strong and sound and will stand the test of time and stand the test of maybe when the rates aren't as attractive or when programs about self-employed or, you know, programs where proving income is difficult, aren't as aggressive as maybe some of our competitors are, that relationship is forged and it's strong and it continues. And so I think that is a good thing about the intensity of the relationship between the broker and the BRM. Yeah, she was fantastic. So hats off to her and she's still working with you guys. So let me ask you this question. So what do you think? I mean, we've touched on this a little bit, but what do you think has helped you guys, Scotia, succeed in the broker channel when there's a lot of the big six are really like, you say the big five, big six, like I'm not in that world. So what is the appropriate, you know, number to use there? But like, they seem to have a limited success compared to what you guys are, I guess. that's what well, I, I wouldn't say that's true. I mean, RBC are the biggest player in the mortgage space in Canada and they've had an incredible run throughout the um, pandemic in terms of so okay I'm, you're probably looking at it i'm meaning more in the broker channel oh so in the broker using, space in the broker yeah, space yeah uh, they're getting penetration in mortgage origination but they're not in the broker channel so like why is it that you guys seem to have figured this out and some of your competitors are either not in here at all or have had very limited success with it well i think that in fairness to the model line competitors with the rule changes with respect to 
not being able to attach the insurance to the conventional deals the way that they once were, that tilted the playing field in our direction in that we were willing, we had a balance sheet, we have deposits, we have enough liquidity to fund conventional mortgages. Those businesses are very dependent on selling into some form of securitization. So that's why they compete so aggressively on high ratio, because they can put all that into the CMB. And then the rest of, you know, there's NHA, uh, MBS, each have their features. But essentially, without a bank buying paper from a monoline on their conventional book, you know, that's their biggest challenge is liquidity. So we're able to offer terms and do volumes that they can't. So I wouldn't say it's not because they don't have the right, efficient right, okay. models. I think that FirstNet has always been a really good competitor. And they've been good for us because they get it and they push us. And I think we push them back. Where I find it a little bit silly is when you look at it today with these ultra low interest rates, you know, look at what attracts the lowest rate. High ratio, your highest risk customers in Canada get the lowest rate. Somebody landing from Mars is going to go, how does that work? And that's simply a function of how the securitization markets work where they're essentially traded like Government of Canada bonds, but they trade higher than a bond, even though they have the security of the house. So model lines compete very effectively in the high ratio market. They price below spreads that make rational sense from my perspective, looking at my cost of funds. Mm -hmm. In the conventional market, they can only do as much as they can sell on. And so they're very dependent. Brokers often forget that, that, most of the funding for the entire industry starts with a bank. Mm-hmm. That's kind of the irony when you have sort of brokers that say, well, we've got to support the model lines so that they can be independent. But the reality is the model lines have very comprehensive relationships with typically more than one bank to have enough liquidity to keep going in the business. Very hard to start up one of those businesses today, mm-hmm. uh, given how tough it is to access money. Right. Yeah, yeah, makes sense. Okay, so if it's okay with you, I'd like to switch to talk rates and housing market a little bit. So obviously, nobody can predict where rates will be in 12 months. But I got to imagine in your position, you must be some things you watch. Like, so are there some key indicators or things that you keep an eye on that kind of gives you an idea of where rates are trending? Absolutely. The better part of every day is spent on thinking about rates, thinking about rate movements, thinking about the impact of rate movements on your pipeline when it's that big going forward. Because essentially, when you write a commitment, you're writing a 90-day free option to a borrower, right? And if rates move up, your spread gets compressed even further, though we do hedge our pipeline. The reality is that The mortgage market historically, if you went backwards to when we've been measuring the data points, has always been a proxy for the GDP of the country. So if growth is around 3 or 4% year, mortgage market typically runs a little bit better than GDP. That's not been the case now because of the pent-up demand going into the pandemic, the circumstances where people were chasing all kinds of other dwellings during the pandemic, and even without immigration, you know, we've had double digit growth in our mortgage book, which is I've never seen in my lifetime. And the reality of that is ultra low interest rates drive demand. So you would know this from the business, right? Mm -hmm. To me, I find it kind of strange that people are thinking that if they pay more than 2%, that rate's too high, but that's the conditioning that's happened in the market. It's bonkers. It's absolutely bonkers. Right. And, you know, I hear people send me emails and I wonder if they reread them 
when they're saying, you know, your 199 isn't as good as 179. And I'm like, are you kidding me, really? But when you look at it, two things happen. It's really low, so it's a good time to borrow that money for the long term. And when it's an amortized product in particular, and you look at your payment every month, more than half of that is going to creating equity for you. And so I still say to anybody, if you're looking at renting versus buying in this ultra low interest rate environment, you've got to give strong consideration to purchasing because you're building equity and creating wealth every month. That ultra low interest rate environment is not going to continue. You've seen in the media reports about how much inflation is there and is it transitory or is it permanent? And because we're coming out of COVID and because of the supply chain interruptions, nobody's been able to make a call on it. But for sure, in my view, rates are going to be higher next year than they are now. And I think you'll see it won't be a dramatic slope up, but it'll start to slope up. So rates will rise. So what drives mortgages are low rates. What drives housing are low rates and also household formation. And Canada has committed to taking on more than 400,000 new Canadians every year. And the bank has spent a lot of time, our senior economists, our commercial lenders, our residential folks, and we've looked at the housing supply in Canada and for the last 10, 15 years, we haven't kept up with the demand. And as a result, we're creating 100,000 units too few that we need every year. Even if we add another 100,000 over the next 10 years, we'll still be behind. So as long as we have this high level of household formation, which is overwhelmingly driven by immigration, and our immigration policies typically attract people that want to come here and have high levels of education, also have some money. And most of those new Canadians, when they get here within two to three years, want to buy a house. Mm-hmm. And so that's really driven the housing market, particularly as they disproportionately show up in our larger urban cities like Toronto and Vancouver and Montreal. And as a result, those places that are doing well as those economies continue to grow on their own organically create wealth so more people want to buy housing then you add on the power of immigration and you've got strong strong housing demand and unfortunately the levels of government haven't streamlined the process so that we can build enough housing stock and that's not just for people that want to be homeowners that's as well for renters Mm -hmm. and subsidized housing we're very 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 far behind where we need to be to address the supply side yeah, I know in my community to get a new project, like it takes forever to get approval yeah. to do it. So then it's like all that creates, you know, like you said, if we need 100,000 new a year for 10 years to keep up, like it probably needs to be done at a local government level to fix some of that stuff in order oh, to. Yeah. Madame Homes, which is one of the biggest new home builders in Canada, if not the largest, if you're looking at where to deploy capital and it takes you five to seven years in the greater Toronto area or one year in Austin, Texas, right? Where are you going to go? Right. And the other point to remember is it not only takes too long, they charge levies disproportionate to keeping the cost of the home down. So the municipalities are adding on indirect taxes into that new home building experience because they don't want to charge existing homeowners. They don't politically want to have to raise the mill rate and have a bunch of pissed off potential voters. So they'd rather whack developers. And this has been a game in Canada for 25 years. And it's all added to delay and additional costs. Plus, 
we don't have enough skilled workers. Even if we wanted to go out and build all these places, our immigration policies need to attract more of the specialized trades that are needed to build all these dwellings, whether they be low or high rise. And we need to disincent folks, very wealthy landowners that would rather sit on the property than develop it because they'd rather have that property appreciation and pay very low levels of taxes on vacant land. So there are all kinds of takes and puts that need to be done to get the supply side going. But essentially, in my view, the federal government needs to use the power of their infrastructure programs and money to incent the provinces to change the municipal rules to make rezoning and redevelopment much, much easier and much faster. Right. There's tons of gold in there. The one I'm going to go back to is the GDP. So how does the GDP of three to four percent, except in the current market, is that relating to interest rates or is that relating to house prices? Like, No, it's just about gross domestic product. So essentially, as your population has more disposable income, that means that they can save enough for a down payment and they can carry and service the debt. Right. So what's the toughest thing if you're in my position as a lender? What causes you? the most heartburn, unemployment. If you had higher levels of unemployment then people all of a sudden lose their jobs, they can't make their mortgage payments and you have defaults and you have all those units that would go back into the supply. So we've got record levels of employment. You've got people making more money in the markets. There's the wealth effect and Mm -hmm. people's relative disposable incomes in those urban environments, particularly among millennials, has grown quite a bit. So the millennials, after new Canadians, present the next big block of potential buyers in the housing market, which means people that will need mortgages. And if they're doing well as a cohort, making more money each year, they have more money to spend on housing. And that's reflected in the basket of goods that forms the GDP. So that's just a bogey that we use. But essentially, the house. So it's, supply, for you, that's like the pulse on the entire Canadian. That's how you sort of measure. It's like one data point, but it's collecting a lot of info in there. And it doesn't tell you everything, but it helps you. Is that how you look at it? Yeah, it's a rule. It's a guide. It's got historical confirmation. If you look back over 25 years at the growth in the mortgage market in different years and you track the GDP, it tracks to it. Not perfectly. Interest rates also are a guide. Like if you look at rising versus falling versus flat and absolute numbers, you'll see the correlation between housing starts, housing sales and interest rates. So, you know, very high period of high interest rates that we haven't had for a while. But, you know, look at the Great Recession that took place after the housing fiasco in the U.S. You can track the interest rate growth and the housing fall off there and then the bounce back. And you can track it as interest rates stabilized and came down and people got more secure and then housing demand went up again. But those are big drivers. Okay. So you said something, everything you said about the problems on the demand side for real estate. Do you think house prices will continue to go up? Yes. I guess what would be the indicator that you'd watch for that you'd say, hey, look, there's a shift happening. Is there something or like... They're still going up, even though they're just not going up at the same accelerated rate that they were during COVID. And that was crazy because some of that demand was a result of people moving out of the city because they wanted to be outside or they could work remotely. So there were areas, you know, that 
Previously, if you were in the GTA and you couldn't qualify, we used to say realtors would tell you you would drive till you qualified. You'd find a house that was drive more you qualified. Affordable, yeah, right? that's good actually. You can put that on a sign. Drive till you so, qualify. Eventually, you'll yeah. find something. It could be in the middle that, of nowhere. It could very well be. And now, what happened was people started to drive to where they not only could qualify, but they could get, you know, some place where they could be outside and have somewhat of a more normalized existence during the pandemic. And what happened as well was people weren't traveling, right? So they decided I'm going to get that recreational property that I've always had my eye on. So it put demand into communities that were further afield, typically bedroom communities. It pushed that demand out there. It pushed it into cottage country and recreational communities. And those markets saw 30, 40% year over year price jumps, which is not sustainable. Having said that, when you look at housing uh, writ large across Canada, and as international students have returned, look at university towns, what that did to vacancies and rental rates, a return to sort of pre-pandemic levels. So all of that vacancy that existed in condominiums, for example, in Toronto, goes away when international students return. As immigration returns, that demand is going to continue. And if right. we carry on at those levels, we just can't create enough housing stock to meet that demand. So house prices will continue to be under upward pressure. Yeah, Some even, of if, even, if rates, even if rates go up a bit, because there's still, yeah, we still, have, there's still a supply still, problem. Still have a supply problem. And don't forget, like people talk a lot about what do you do in a rising rate environment, but most folks, most Canadians, even financially literate ones, don't understand what the Bank of Canada qualifying rate is. So when we did the most recent rise to five and a quarter, we were underwriting deals at five and a quarter for people that were paying 2%. I don't think there's any economist out there that says in the next 24 months that we'll be in a 5% five-year mortgage market, right? We'll see some increases as we right. move forward. So people forget about that interest rate cushion. And they also forget what I mentioned earlier is, as you're paying your mortgage, more than half of your payment today goes to retiring the debt. It's attacking that principal balance outstanding. At the same time, your house price is appreciating. That's why everyone should have a Scotia line, should have a step product with a secured line have that attached so the time that you need to do your backyard renovation or that you want to invest in the market or you want to help a child go to post-secondary, that's when you do it. But as long as you're in a world where you've got low interest rates, you're making your payment, you're building equity, and you're in a situation where we underwrote you three years ago at a rate that is still lower than the prevailing rate will be, I can't see how all of a sudden a rate increase changes that. Yeah, okay, that's really interesting. Okay, so let's say if I gave you a magic wand, John, I'm like, hey, you could make one change to the mortgage rules or regulations in Canada, what would it be? Well, I think I would strongly look at increasing the cap for first-time buyers in the metro markets, right? I really believe that first-time buyer program in Canada has been undersold. I think CMHC did a really good job introducing the program. It was well-run. It should be the pride of Canadians. But we let a lot of other agencies and people from countries that didn't understand our domestic market tell us that we were being irresponsible. So it's been dampened down, but I don't think that there's any evidence that suggests that it wasn't a successful program. So I think that 
you know, what you saw in this election that I've never seen before in my adult lifetime was that affordable housing is a vote getting or vote losing issue. And we know the environment is increasingly top of the mind awareness for people going to the polls, mm-hmm. but caring about the housing market and mortgages has never been there. So I'm hoping that people act on that and put pressure on their MPPs, their MPs, their councillors to say, you've got to address the supply issue and really move forward with some concrete measures, not just talk about it, but actually do as what you said in your community, it shouldn't take that long to get a building permit. That's not acceptable. Right. Interesting. Yeah, it's good. Okay. So a couple last questions. One, there's a BMO study done on the broker channel and it was pretty, I think, optimistic towards the broker channel having opportunity for growth. So I was wondering what your thoughts were on that study. Well, I think it was a good study and it was comprehensive and well thought out, well written. I mean, I didn't agree with everything that was written, but for the most part, I did. I think you should be optimistic if you're a mortgage broker looking forward. You offer a service and it's a reasonably sophisticated service because the mortgage rules, as you know, have changed so many times in the past five, 10 years that it's not an easy thing to understand what is required to qualify for those low interest rates or to maximize your loan amount. So you need people that are specialists that do this every day and brokers do that. Good mortgage brokers are incredibly valuable to people making a purchase like that. What people forget about is the consumer doesn't have to pay anything. I mean, look at that. There's a service, you as a consumer going out to buy a house can retain a mortgage broker and the lender pays. I mean, what a great service. Yeah, And because of, I think it's pretty great. And with automation, I think that that will continues to assist brokers as they look for greater efficiencies as it does lenders and realtors. So in my view, given the way brokers increasingly are positioned, the way that as they grow in the business can move away from just depending on referral sources to their own book of business, You know, the good brokers, in my view, are a lot like good restaurants. The next thing you know, you're recommending family members and friends, and it builds like that, and then they'll come back to you. So I think if you provide that kind of service, they have lots to look forward to. And most of the ones that I work with and have known over the years are very dedicated into making this their vocation. They're not leaving in three years or five years. They're going to stay at that. In fact, I know many of them that then bring their kids into the business So I think that it's a sustainable business. One of the challenges are the acquisition costs. Originating mortgages through mortgage brokers is the most expensive acquisition channel for me as a lender. And so, you know, that's always a tough thing because spreads your challenge by cost of funds, interest rate movements in the market that happen on a daily basis and can squeeze your margins. But your acquisition costs are always fixed. And I have no problem paying as long as I can achieve the efficiencies that I need in the business. So that's always sort of the trade-off. But I think the brokers should be optimistic. They have lots to look forward to. They'll continue, you know, as the report said, they're picking up market share. Yeah, totally. And I think as we've seen technology and all these things increase, but so has regulation and confusion has increased. So the consumer needs that somebody who can actually guide them through it. So I have one last question for you, John. I assume you probably don't have a personal mortgage, but if you did, would you go variable or fixed on a personal mortgage right now? 
So I have not had a personal mortgage for many, many years, but I have four adult sons that are very aggressive. So now I have a personal mortgage that I didn't have before. Yeah. And for me, I don't worry so much about the rising interest rate market. So I look at that absolute coupon and variable and I would take a variable. Right. That's awesome. Well, John, I feel like I've gotten smarter just from this conversation with you. I know that our community is going to love this. There's so much gold in here. I appreciate it for taking the time. Maybe at some point in the future, you know, things change in the years. If you'd be willing to come back on, we could always do a check in what's happening in the mortgage world. But this has been a lot of fun. Thanks so much. No problem. And uh, happy to return and do a follow up and see if anything I said came to pass. Okay, we'll hold you to that. Hey, Reuben, welcome back to Ask the Experts. Hey, Scott, great to be here. Thanks for having me. So today we're going to talk about NFTs. What are they? What are the implications for the real estate industry? We were having a discussion before we turned the recorder and my mind is literally like kind of blown with the implications of this. So maybe if somebody doesn't know, what is an NFT? And can you give me an example? So an NFT stands for non-fungible token. If you're familiar with cryptocurrency, a token is essentially a digital record of something that has some sort of inherent value. So one example of it is if you remember collecting stuff. So a lot of us collected, you know, baseball and hockey cards and they had certain value and, you know, there's certain cards that may have been worth hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars. People collect sneakers and all sorts of stuff. An NFT is the digital version of a collectible, meaning it could be a piece of artwork. It could be, for example, one of the first tweets from the founder of uh, Twitter, Jack Dorsey, sold for about $2.1 million. So it's really an asset, if you think about it, from the digital world as opposed to what we're used to collecting in the physical world. Right. Okay. So it makes sense. My son actually collects sneakers or he loves sneakers. And so it's basically this a way to track who owns something. But how is that different than let's say like what makes this unique, I guess, if I'm not a crypto person, how would I understand that this is different than like just saying I got to download on my computer? I own that, don't I? And you dumb that down for me? Yeah, so what it boils down is to really have that token as a signal of ownership. And the nice thing about tokens, and if you're familiar with the blockchain world, everything is really decentralized, meaning there's no one central body that can manipulate the data and the value of what that particular artifact is worth. It is recorded. Once it's recorded into the blockchain, it's essentially tamper-proof by all parties. So for instance, if we talk about the title system, so in BC, they keep track of who owns properties, they've got their database. So how is this blockchain anyway, different than just keeping it on a record in a computer at Kamloops in BC, where it's not far from us? So a couple things. One is the title system is controlled centrally, usually by a government body, whereas a token or blockchain in general is decentralized, meaning it's really owned by the people. Every individual or every business that's on the blockchain essentially can view and make sure that that record is tamper-proof, that it's authentic, etc. The other thing about real estate in general is real estate is an illiquid asset, meaning if I want to sell you my house, the only way that I have or the only method that I have today is really to list my house for sale, you'll pay me for it, and 100% ownership transfers over to a new party. By having a token, and there's a concept called smart contract behind it, essentially you're making that real estate asset, the physical real estate asset, more liquid. Meaning I can sell you, say I want to sell 90% of my house and I want to keep 10% ownership, or I want to keep 10% royalty. So for example, if you buy that home and you want to flip it in five years, we can have a smart contract behind the scenes in the blockchain that's fully enforceable 
that will allow me to do that, will allow me to sell a portion of my home, will allow me to capitalize on any particular upside that you might have in years to come. So that really changes the game when it comes to buying or selling real estate, the speed by which you can buy and sell, and then also the speed by which you can borrow against that real estate because it becomes a more liquid asset and it's, again, decentralized. So the whole concept of a bank or a lender eventually goes away. Right. Okay. I have a friend who a couple of years ago came to me and he's like, Hey, Scott, you got to get into crypto. And I'm like, dude, that's crazy. He's a young guy. He's like 20 years old, right? It's not that long ago. He bought a house from the money that he made from crypto. And I was like, oh, dang it. I should have listened to you. But in any case, it's still something that I'm a novice at. But just so I understand the blockchain part, we'll jump into this a bit more. So essentially, the record is not just kept in one place. Am I correct in saying the record is in a whole bunch of places? So you couldn't tamper one of the records and be like, oh, look, this other person owns it. Like you'd actually have to physically alter it on all if it's sources, is that correct or is that not right? That is exactly it. So it has to be verified and it is essentially the most tamper-proof system that exists out there rather than having you know one record sit with a single authority. Right. Okay. So then it makes it safer. And then this thing about smart contracts. So do you see this happening? Do you think that at some point in the future, we're going to see a world where people will have an NFT on a piece of real estate or on a physical asset that they can then transfer ownership of, partial ownership of? create unique contracts around. Do you see that coming? Is that already in play or is that just further down the road? It's already in play in more of an experimental way. So about six months ago, there was the first NFT sale of real estate that happened in the US. They've actually sold an apartment, auctioned it off. The winner paid for it in full crypto. And along with that, there was a smart contract that transferred over the property rights to that individual. I believe it will become a lot more prevalent. So again, in contrast, we're living in a world that's still pen and paper, fax, email. So it may seem like it's years and years away, but a lot of this technology allows us to basically have business models or again, ways of selling, buying homes, borrowing against our assets in a much, much easier way. So today, the scenario is really simple. If I need money and I need a home equity loan, the only place I can go to is the bank. You have to jump through hoops. Or, or mortgage company. Come on, we're mortgage brokers yeah. here. It's not just banks yeah. in the season you're doing. <laughs> yeah. I know what you're saying. You're talking a traditional lender. Yeah. So that makes sense. The smart contract. So essentially, let's say you have a piece of property. We have an NFT on it. You sell it to me. And then can you dictate to me the terms of that smart contract? And if I agree to it, then I can't change it, right? Like, so if it's the royalty thing, when you sell it, I get the upside or whatever that looks like, then is that how that works? Like, or exactly. Yeah. It becomes embedded. So forever with that asset. So say that asset is a home, that smart contract is embedded and that royalty piece or equity piece can remain as part of the record in that blockchain. Right. And then, so when event a happens that triggers this, then you wouldn't have to even think about it. You wouldn't have, you don't have to chase them down nothing. It's going to happen as based on the contract that's baked into the software, basically. Exactly. Be part of that record. Right into that record. Okay. So is there any other ways that you can see NFTs being applied to mortgages or real estate? So one of the things is because it's tokenized, you can also borrow against an NFT. So an NFT will have a value attached to it. There's a concept of decentralized finance, which we're probably going to talk about in another show, but the whole concept basically relies on if somebody has crypto or somebody has a liquid asset, they can put that out there in the blockchain and essentially lend it out or borrow against it, which means if you've got a piece of real estate that's attached to an NFT and it's worth a certain amount of money and you decide, hey, I'd like to take out some of this equity 
against it, you could potentially get your money within literally seconds from others that have cryptocurrency that is out there for lending. Right. So, okay. Again, talk to me like I'm 10 here. So I got a property that's got an NFT attached to it. I decide I want to borrow against 20% of the equity of this property and individuals could lend me money using crypto. Is that correct? So it could be like, exactly. it could be one or many individuals that could be like, Hey, yeah, I don't mind. This sounds like a good asset. How would they get paid if they were borrowing? You know, how did that work? Yeah, you would have that set in a smart contract and most likely there's marketplaces that are now facilitating these types of transactions. So mm -hmm. you'll put up a listing of your asset, you'll put your ask, so you're asking for a certain amount of money and those individuals would basically come in and transfer you over the money and same thing, the smart contract would be the enforcement against your asset. I see. Okay. That makes sense. So you're in the law space. You guys do lots of transactions. You know, you're dealing with the old archaic systems that transfer title. And it's interesting that you are already looking ahead and being like, Hey, you know, how is this going to play out in real estate? Is there any other ways you can see NFTs, you know, being used in mortgages or real estate? Yeah, we see it as a game changer overall, if anything, just to reduce all the friction and all the steps that happen in closing a mortgage or closing a property. If you think about what this technology has the potential to do is really make that entire process within a single click or within a single tap, rather than having to go through the process today, which includes dozens of steps, takes a long time and is fairly costly. Right, right. So I could literally send somebody a text and sell a property and be like, here, click this, boom, and then smart contracts in place and you could buy or sell something much more rapidly. What uh, cryptocurrency are NFTs on or is it all of them? Like, I don't, again, this is a, maybe a dumb question, but is there certain platforms that they use or how does that work? Yeah. So most common one is Ethereum because Ethereum does have the uh, smart contract capability to be able to attach directly to an NFT. So NFTs are generally purchased with cryptocurrency being Ethereum. So you'll have to have a crypto wallet with Ethereum in it in order to transact NFTs. Okay, so have you seen crypto at all in any part of the lawyer side of things currently? We haven't seen uh, real world transactions yet, but it definitely is becoming prevalent. As people have more of their assets in crypto, it only makes sense that some of the down payment funds come in the form of crypto. So there's really a couple ways to do it. And there's a few service providers that are now converting that crypto into local currency. So you can always trade your Bitcoin for whatever value they're worth in dollars. But eventually it can become an entirely crypto transaction where down payments are accepted in cryptocurrency. And even so much as the loan is going to be funded in cryptocurrency behind that property. Right. Okay, cool. This is great. This is some you know, deep talks with Reuven. So if you guys are listening to this, check out Dita.ca. I can tell you they're not using crypto yet because it's not something that's available, but I have an amazing platform for mortgage brokers to use in terms of making the entire lawyer experience virtual, digital. It's amazing. The communication is fantastic. Any of my clients or coaches that have used it have loved it. So check them out, Dita.ca slash ILMB. And in the next episode, we're going to talk about decentralized finance and how that plays into this whole thing. So I'm looking forward to chatting with that, Reuben. Awesome. Thanks again for having me, Scott. This is an I Love Mortgage Brokering production.